Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a series of short discussions on various topics related to the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Your hosts, Kale Tita, Evan Basilic, and Sajid Mello, discuss a specific topic on each show to give you a high-level overview of that topic and resources to get more information should you wish to dig further. For more information on our show, please see our website at azpodcast.com. Well, welcome to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 206, being recorded on the 29th of November, 2017. I'm Sajid, and on Skype with me, I have uh, Kale and Evan. It's, it's the, the old gang back together again. Uh, good to, to have uh, like a nice little roundtable discussion on an interesting topic, something that's become pretty hot these days. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but how about we catch up on some uh, news? And before we even get there, uh, we had one of our old uh, hosts, a uh, guest uh, uh, on our show. For, uh, I think it was, uh, I want to say, 185 or thereabouts. I forget the exact number now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like a, that's like a year ago now. <laughs> it feels like that, right. Um, Barry Laubrix, he talked about... Uh, um, app services and how he was using yeah. it and things like that. It was a really nice uh, show. And he's uh, you know really deep into Azure, and uh, he and uh, uh, another uh, colleague, uh, Michael Crump, have written uh, a book called The Developer's Guide to Microsoft Azure. And it's a free book. And actually, I've been uh, looking at it today uh, since he brought that book to my attention. And you know, um, you know, I mean, we're I mean, we're all developers, but uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time doing development for the customer. And, you know, when I see a book like this, uh, the first thought that goes to my mind, though, you know, they're going to start off by saying, okay, this is how you write the hello world in the cloud, right? I mean, that's what you think about when developers. But what I like about these guys is they've taken the approach, which we've um, talked about a lot in the show before, which is Azure has so many services, right, that developers should leverage instead of writing code. Uh, there's so many different things that you can do in Azure, but just a few lines of code. And so that's what he, you know, he kind of, the, the book is centered around, okay, if you're a developer, first look at all these services and understand what they do and figure out how you can use them, right, before you, you start writing C-sharp or Node.js code and things like that. So that's what I like about the, the format of the book. It's, it's, it's really nice, uh, and uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, definitely recommend people... Uh, take a look at it uh, it's you know it's pretty much up to date with all the latest technologies as of uh, a, a couple of months ago so you so you better read it within the next three weeks cause <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going to comment like there's a note on the page that says sign up here um and you'll get notifications when we read it like yeah. i've never seen that before in a book oh, nice. which, but that's awesome yeah right it's the uh, the github uh, mentality right yeah <laughs> exactly yeah. Uh, right. So, uh, what else? Uh, I know, Evan, I noticed there was the SQL uh, thing there. Do you want to talk about that or try something else today? Um, for the SQL one, there was the managed disk stuff that I was going to talk about. Oh, are you talking about the automatic plane correction? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so this is, uh, it, you know, again, this is going down the path where we've talked about this before, where, um, you know, the first step was get to the point where you don't have to worry about your disks and your and your OS and you know, setting up your database and all that kind of stuff for Azure SQL DB. And now if you look back over the last year or two, right, you're starting to see these hints of like we're, we're um, 
make turning the DBA type activities into built into the service, mm-hmm. right? And that's what this you know automatic plan correction stuff is. Is it's targeted at hey, if if you have a bad plan, rather than just dying, <laughs> right? Rather than your your query just not working well, um, you know you can go back and basically force it to go back to the old plan, and it'll automatically do that for you. Oh, that's nice. Right. So it, it, this basically says you, you kind of, ha- you know, I, I suspect, I, I haven't looked at it close enough to see, but I suspect there's a notification somewhere that you'll get that this has happened. This has happened, yeah. yeah. And you know what, and this, this, I was, I was wondering about that because I saw, um, I was looking through our Twitter feed, our Azure podcast Twitter feed the other mm-hmm. day, and then there was one of these uh, notes from the Azure team, and it says over there, SQL Server, you know, the the first self-tuning database or something. And I'm like, self-tuning? Uh, yeah. I didn't realize SQL Server was self-tuning, but now it makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this is really leveraging the old, um, if you've ever done the the missing indexes queries, right? There were all these solutions out there to, to write a query to figure out which indexes you should create on the fly. And this is kind of in that same vein. The difference is it's going to do it for you, mm. right? Which, I mean, I can't tell you how many crit sits I worked over the years where someone's database just kind of evolved out of mm-hmm. performance, right? Their data grew just a little bit. They weren't keeping their indexes up, all that kind of stuff. That just goes away as we continue down this path. As long as you get a notification and they can go back and fix things later, I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah, it it looks like there's like some history or something like, oh, it's essentially like an audit of like what happens here. So your DBAs could still kind of keep tabs on, you know, what's happening over here and and kind of control from that respect. Yeah. But, But I mean, think about that, right? Now the DBA activity is to go in and say, oh, hey, man, auto tuning had to kick in here. Let me go figure out why. Yeah. Versus, holy crap, my database fell over. Now I have to go figure out why. Right? That's that's a very. I, I if I was a DBA, I'd much rather the first one. <laughs> like, yeah. a, a lot less paging involved at that point. Yeah. yeah, and less of the boss breathing down your neck. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Uh, and uh, Kale, is there something that you like on that list today? Yeah, one that's a little obscure here, but it's uh, from a past life. Uh, makes a lot of sense. So the Azure location-based service mm. uh, is in public preview. And I don't think location-based services are probably new to people at this point, you know, with mobile phones and all the different kind of services out there for tracking your location and all these pieces. But uh, I don't know if this is like an exact kind of replacement or something like that for, we used to have like the Bing right. um, kind right. of location stuff and maps and whatnot, but this has a map control and location tracking, all kinds of really cool stuff, even like a rendering uh, type service. They can actually like render the scenes and whatnot, like the maps and all those pieces as well as routing. And that's the one I wanted to just comment quickly on the routing service is pretty awesome. I mean, you know, we have these things in our GPS and our cars and all that stuff now, but I remember, you know, when I was first starting a long time ago, uh, working at a logistics company and we were designing routing software and it was incredibly expensive. It was super expensive to license like routing engines for like a uh, location service. And essentially we have as a service here now, which is like ridiculously cheap, which kind of blows my mind. Of yeah. how far we've come. <laughs> and, uh, so I was looking at some of the maps, you and they they look a little different, right? They've changed the uh, they're not exactly the same as the Bing maps. Uh, yeah, look and feel. Uh, I, I the way I I read it is that this is a little more uh, for the commercial side 
of of the mapping yep. business, so to speak. You know, like you you won't find like uh, you know the push pins and all that stuff uh, over here. I don't think you will, at least. Uh, you know, as telling you what Starbucks is next door or nearby and things like that. So uh, yeah, it remains to be seen though. But that's uh, interesting service. Yep. And, uh, you know, uh, I kind of like the um, Azure analysis services uh, integrated finally with the uh, diagnostic logs. So, you know, the uh, Azure Monitor uh, is our uh, universal kind of diagnostic logging system that is slowly being uh, rolled out to all the Azure services. And pretty much as far as I know, most of the ones that I deal deal with on a day-to-day basis uh, have um, certainly adopted the Azure Monitor or they've integrated with it. But looks like uh, the uh, this particular one uh, was a little the analysis services was uh, just got on board and that's good because now they can they can find out uh, you know get various uh, detail logs for understanding who's accessing the system the health of the system um, some of the metrics you know any long running queries uh, that are being done, that are being executed on the analysis services uh, database and things like that and those are all sent to a standard diagnostic log and this can be captured put into you know a blob storage for later analysis uh, compliance etc so it's it's good stuff so is this uh, and maybe i'm wrong here but is this like uh, i read this as the fact that the logs coming out of azure from like um yeah, you know, the control plane and things like that. Is that is that what this is about? This actually sits on top of that and allows you to write. No, this is there? this is an well the 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 log analytics allows you to do that already. Mm-hmm. Now this is Azure Analysis Services now can dump its diagnostic stuff into. Yeah, it's oh, its own its own okay. internal logs. I got can you. Be dumped I got you. Out, you know. Yeah, I got you. Um, cool. And it's, so it's if you look at the uh, the screenshots, it's a standard Azure monitor, right? You have three options: you can go to Log Analytics, you can go to Event Hub, or you can you can archive it to a storage account. And so uh, you just pick one of those three. I, uh, I wonder if that says uh, that this is coming for SQL at some point. It should be there. It should come for at least the managed SQL. Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine it should be there. Oh, it I, I don't think it's there now. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't think it's there now, but man, that that opens up some real opportunities at that point where you no longer are tied to having access to your database to get this kind of stuff. Well, so. I mean, Cosmos DB has it. I know that I've been working with it very closely. That's why I know about this stuff. Right. Uh, right. And so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that all all systems should have it, including SQL. Yep. All right, uh, and then what else is there? Let's see. So, so I wanted to touch on this, um, uh, the managed disks, uh, the P15 size. Mm. Um, not so much because the size itself is unique. I'm not 100% sure why we decided we needed a size between P10 and P20. Um, but the fact that there's a quirk to these disks that I, I ran into this week that I wanted to share with the audience because I suspect other people will make the mistake as well. Um, so imagine a scenario where you've got uh, uh, you create a VM it's a standard disk, but you decide to take advantage of managed disks, right? You look at it and go, well, you know, my, my VM's only, you know, I only got 50 or 60 gigs of OS. My OS disk, I'm just going to make it 50 gigs. Well, with a traditional standard disk, you get 500 IOPS with that. The way that we do premium storage, your IOPS is directly correlated with your disk size. So if you are thinking, hey, I have a managed disk, it's 50 gigs, I want to go to premium. Premium's faster you actually get less than half the IOPS. If you take a 50 gig disk and just turn it into a, from a standard to a premium, you now drop from 500 to 240 IOPS, hmm. even though you're on SSD. 
Um, so again, so I, I think the recommendation is to, you know, when you're moving from standard to premium, make sure you're paying attention to the IOPS that your premium disk size gives you, not just, you know, that I'm on an SSD versus a standard disk. The other thing to share, and this is this is a, a trick, the, the marketing and the, the billing people probably won't, I don't want them to hear this, but um, the way we do our tiers, it, you know, it's, it's, if you're 64, you know, um, if you're between 65 and 128 gigs, you get, uh, and, and I may be off the numbers, but for the sake of conversation, 500 IOPS. And then if you're 257 to 1024, you get, say, 1100 IOPS. If you, but we charge um, roughly 13 cents per gigabyte per month. So if you think about it, if you're at 256 gigs, you get 500 IOPS. If you're at 257, you get 1100 and you pay us 13 cents more per month. Oh, I see. So we did so, game the system there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so so pay attention, like you know, if you need those I if you don't need the IOPS, obviously don't go any larger. Why pay the thirteen cents? Right. But if if you need it and you and you don't you know, there's no reason to go in and say, Hey, I'm gonna do this massive disc, but I just need to be into that tier. So that's just a little hint for people as they're sizing their disc. So pay attention to the IOPS you get when you change from standard to premium and then, you know, if you really aren't hundred percent sure what you need for IOPS better to err just a little bit on the high side but just barely going into that next tier so evan one thing just to clarify on this uh, yeah. this managed disk stuff so when people are spinning up a vm like right now the managed disk as i understand it is a is an offering that basically means you don't have to set up a storage account and whatnot right. the disk right. just comes along with the vm we'll kind of manage the storage account for you mm-hmm. but the these p's um this p tier storage is something that you that I experienced in the past when we would say, okay, now I want to add some data disks to this. And yep. those data disks, then I could pick like I think in the past we only had like P10, 20, and 30s. Um, so is that what this is all about? The data it's, disk, not it's the a, OS disk. No, it's the so now so it's the OS disk as well. So your both your both your data and your OS disk can be either managed or unmanaged. Um, you know, again, like you were saying, if you're doing managed disks, you don't have to worry about your storage account. You just say I want a disk and and we, you know, handle putting it somewhere for you. Um, but you still do have to pay attention to the traditional IOPS, you know, things around individual disks. So, but, yeah, this is just kind of move. The, the the scenario I ran into is that somebody has an environment where they're not, you know, they're just deploying a, um, a, a basically an appliance, right? So they don't really have data disks. They're not, you know, they're just really deploying an OS um, that brings some functionality, and they thought they were in the clear because they said, well, hey, I'm on premium. Yeah, they know that's awesome. I get SSD, you know, speed. Well, yeah, you do. You just, but you need more IOPS than, than you're giving yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Awesome. And then uh, we'll put the link to uh, the last week in Azure uh, update, yep. which has yep. you know, some of what we talked today and including some of the stuff we talked about last week all uh, in one place. Uh, okay, uh, great. So that thing, that's a good uh, wrap up of. Oh, uh, yeah. There was another thing about the Visual Studio Team Services accounts, right? Uh, we. Yeah, uh, that was the one where basically this is. We've talked about this a couple of times now, where you know uh, you, you really need to if you're if you haven't moved to the new portal, new portal, uh, yeah. you need to do it soon because we're turning we're turning things off left and right there, um, and they're they're going to be only in the new portal versus the classic one as well. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, well, let's get started with our uh, topic of today. And, uh, you know, we, uh, the Kubernetes has been uh, 
getting a lot of press these days, right? With AKS uh, hitting the market now, uh, getting in preview, uh, and uh, I think that's uh, raised uh, the the kind of competition for supporting Kubernetes in the cloud. And so I thought we'll just take uh, maybe an episode to bring everybody up to speed on what Kubernetes is and how. Uh, how Microsoft is allowing you to run Kubernetes uh, in Azure, and also how you can run it, uh, you know, on your own uh, hardware if if that's the way you want to go. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, Kubernetes. Um, so one thing I'll say about uh, well, so you know, when in the past when we talked about it, that the the way we described it is Kubernetes is uh, a container orchestrator. I think that's the, the common definition that most people know about. There is uh, obviously many um, many orchestration engines out there. Uh, they, keep, they seem to be keep growing every day. But uh, the popular ones are, um, besides Kubernetes, is um, of course Docker Swarm, uh, Mesosphere, DCOS, and uh, I think that's it, right? Yeah. So uh, the 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 thing is that. You know what's what's so special about Kubernetes, and I spent a lot of time in the past few weeks uh, on behalf of my customer doing some work in Kubernetes, and uh, I, I really it's changed my um, it's changed my uh, view of, of of what the software is and what it can do and what the future of the software will be for us. Uh, we you know we've noticed Microsoft is spending a lot of resources and time on Kubernetes off late. Uh, Kubernetes, uh, as uh, you, I'm sure you, you guys know, uh, was born uh, out of uh, work that was done in Google originally for their own data center um, uh, containerization and management, and it became it was then moved into the open source, and it is available at Kubernetes.io uh, is where most of the uh, documentation and uh, all the code can be found for this. But uh, you know. When it was, if, if you look at all the documentation, there's one, uh, there seems to be one person that seems to be very much involved with most of it. His name is Brendan Burns. And uh, he's a, well, he used to be a Google engineer, and now he's uh, uh, he works at Microsoft now. And he's the one who's leading the charge uh, in terms of our uh, efforts in Kubernetes. So uh, I, I saw this uh, this trajectory of, of Kubernetes uh, inside of Microsoft, and then that's when I spent time with it, and I realized now why it's it's so good. And I want to spend some time talking about it, what it is, and uh, give people an idea as to you know what it can do. It's more than just an orchestration engine. That's uh, the underlying uh, message here. Yes, yeah, so you then and you probably I don't know about Evan, but I, I don't work with Kubernetes as probably as much as you guys do. But like one of the things I would would like to understand is, is is this everything? Like so when you tell me it's like working with containers and it's doing orchestration, my first question is like what is it providing? Maybe you could describe that. Like is it the actual container format? Do I use like Docker containers on this? Like what? How does how does that stuff all fit together? And and then what, what does this fill the gap in? Yeah, that's 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 a great question, uh, Hill. So yeah, so the, uh, underlying everybody, all these systems we talked about earlier, right? Uh, DCOS, Mesosphere, Docker Swarm—they all use the Docker container format as a container technology. Uh, now I should point out that Docker containers is not the only form of containers out there. There's other containers technologies, and I know Kubernetes supports other ones besides the Docker format. But the Docker containers is by far one of the most popular ones uh, that we've come to. Uh, 
uh, know and love. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that particular container set. Now, just to be clear, Kubernetes itself does not host the Docker containers, okay? Docker containers has, uh, you know, can be hosted in well-known repositories. There's the Docker Hub, or uh, Google has their own internal repository, or I think a public repository as well. Uh, and of course, uh, there's many that you can buy. Um, um, of course, the Azure Container uh, Repository (ACR), I think is what we call it, uh, that's available in Azure. And of course, uh, many many other companies, including AWS, and all have their own repositories. So there's, you know, you 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 create your Docker container and you push it to these repositories, just like you always have been doing. Okay, the where container starts hitting the kind of uh, hitting the road is when when you have to run them, right? And when you have to run them at scale. This is why you need all these tools. Anybody can, um, can you know, just take a container and run it, right? You put some code out there, you get the Nginx container, you get so many all these images out there, there's like literally thousands, if not more than tens of thousands of images in the Docker Hub, and you can pull out any one and run it real quickly. It's a very nice experience. But running them uh, in, uh, in, um, in a controlled way, so that all your applications uh, talk to each other in a you know and and, and run and run properly and and be able to heal them and uh, and update them and do all the CI CD with them. That is something that is difficult to do, and that's why you need uh, uh, stuff like Kubernetes, and that's what Kubernetes offers. So, uh, so the so the question was very good, Kel. Yes, uh, Kubernetes at the very lowest level works with. Uh, containers, okay, or Docker containers in this particular case. So, but that's not, again, containers is not specific to Kubernetes, right? So Kubernetes considers uh, a special uh, construct called a pod, a POD, pod, as its uh, smallest unit of uh, compute. Uh, and pods contain one or more containers. Uh, typically, you have only one, but there are some, uh, a lot of uh, reasons why you might want to have more than one container in the same pod. A good example is if you, you know traditionally we think about the worker role and the web role, you can put both of them into one container because they might want, both want to share the same file system, you know, exchange files, exchange uh, some uh, some other queue or, or something like that in memory, and um, it's it's better to have them in the same container as opposed to having them in two separate containers talking to each other over TCP/IP. So so you can have uh, multiple containers in one pod, but typically a pod contains uh, one container. And so that is uh, the minimum uh, unit of deployment uh, in Kubernetes. Now, of course, you can just uh, you know put the container in a pod and run the pod in Kubernetes, and you know, great. But that's you haven't achieved anything there because that pod is just like running it today in a Docker in your Docker uh, application. You know, it'll it'll run. It'll if it dies, it dies. If it, you know, you can't really control it, right? A single pod is just something that runs. When you want to control it, you have to use something called a controller. And there are many such controllers in Kubernetes. Uh, the most popular one, or I guess the earliest one, which came out, actually the most popular, but the earliest one was a replication controller. And this one is just like the name suggests. Is, you know, you just say I need like ten, um, ten uh, pods, uh, ten versions of this, or ten instances of this pod. And it's going to make sure that you know this ten instances rolled out to all the nodes in your cluster. Uh, if one of those uh, nodes, if one of those pods dies. No, Another one will pop right up, right? It'll make sure there's all so, these ten. So you're basically that's basically like setting my this is my minimum number of instances I I want. Correct. Mine. Okay. Yep. 
uh, and then um, you can set up some, you know, just like I said, you can set up some scaling rules to say, okay, you know, if the, if, if the pods are not busy, uh, the CPU is not being used, uh, you can bring the number of pods down. If the CPU gets busy, you can increase the number of pods to this max, pretty much like the auto scaling that we have in Azure. Right. Uh, and so that's that's what the controllers do. But at this point, it's a managed environment of pods, right? Because uh, these pods are being watched uh, like a hawk, and if anything happens to them, they're being immediately fixed. Now, is that, uh, Sajid, just to jump in here, does that do anything? Like, I'm thinking about just pure Docker. So in Docker, we have, like, containers, and let's say we have, like, I don't know, five or six different containers that make up our whole app. And we use things like Docker Compose to basically orchestrate, okay, when you spin these up, make sure you bring this guy up first and then this guy and then this other guy. Does this work with Docker Compose or is this like replace it? It has a better way. It has a better way, yeah. And then so replication controller is kind of, you know, has no, uh, so there are many kinds of controllers, okay, that, that come into play over here. The replication controller is uh, one that is kind of a general purpose controller. It just runs the pods in any particular sequence, right? There's no sequence involved. It's just going to make sure there's n number of pods mm-hmm. that, will, that will be running uh, to satisfy your uh, scaling requirements. If you need something a little bit uh, finer, like what you just said, you could use something called a stateful set controller, okay? In a stateful set controller, um, these will uh, they do two things. You can you can uh, the, the pods themselves have particular states. So if they die and they get recreated, they, they rehydrate to the last state they were. Okay, unlike a traditional pod where you know pod if it dies you just throw it away and you create a new one. Right here you're not just throwing it away. You're actually recreating the pod with the same in the same. Um, with the same data, but it also allows for this ordered deployment of pods, right? You can say, hey, first do the backends, then do the front ends, you know, or first do the database, then the backend, then the front end, whatever the, that, that is, uh, that sequence is, you can do that with a stateful set. So, so with this, I, I mean, this sounds like a lot of functionality, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds like this is very powerful, but how easy would it be, you know, so I'm probably more in Kale's camp than your camp where I, I have not done anything with containers. I, mean, I know the concepts of kind of understand what people are doing, but I've never actually tried to go, you know, do a use Docker containers or any of this. If I, if I had to go deploy this, is this, you know, learn all these command lines and, and all this esoteric syntax, or is that some of what the, you know, when we talk about the Kubernetes, does Kubernetes bring kind of an easier experience for somebody? Uh, I wouldn't say that. The Kubernetes is kind of command line heavy, right? Okay. So essentially, there is a gigantic command line called Kube Control. Okay. And so everything runs on Kube Control. So you say Kube Control or Kube CTL for short is uh, the actual command line. But uh, so you say Kube Control, and then you're going to give all these parameters. It does everything, right? You can you can create new deployments. You can create new these of these stateful sets, replication controllers, whatever. Yeah. Um, or you can you can you know create a new pod. So everything runs in that command line. But when you deploy the cluster, the Kubernetes cluster, it also deploys a dashboard uh, software on the cluster, which is like a web front end to the cluster. Uh, similar to, if you remember, Service Fabric had that, you yeah. know, that very fancy uh, website. And so similar to that, you do get that, and that lets you at least navigate and do the management from a web 
uh, page. It's not the, the, you know, I wouldn't say it's the most fancy website in the world, but it, it does the job, right? Okay. It allows you to do everything that you can do with cube control you can do on the website without having to remember all the syntax and commands, like you said. Well, that I mean, I think that's the distinction. Like, it's okay if you do your initial deployment that way because it's probably, you know, you've got your scripting and you kind of lay out what you're doing. But it, the day-to-day management, it's always that's what kills me because yeah. hey, I haven't run this command for two months. What is the parameter to do blah, right? And so so having some sort of management UI it certainly helps. It, it, that, it's, so. it's definitely helpful. And, you know, one of the reasons I believe why Kubernetes has become popular is because there are a lot of other third-party tools that have come up to simplify this very experience that uh, you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, Spinnaker, uh, I think, is another one, a popular one that is uh, is also available. That takes the Kubernetes uh, concepts and kind of creates an even simpler kind of landscape around it, you know, because Kubernetes has all these pieces like I talked about, like pods, rep controllers, there is uh, services, uh, load balancing, persistent volumes, config maps, and so on and so forth, which uh, you have to know all these concepts. But I had to read the, the documentation three or four times to understand it. One thing I'll tell you about the documentation in, uh, for Kubernetes, it's really good, but they don't believe in diagrams or pictures at all. Okay. It's the di- complete opposite to what a Microsoft document would look like. War like, and peace. Like 15 documents. In this. Sorry, what was that? War and peace. War War and peace. peace. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, I was. It, it reminds me, I was looking at, uh, there's a Linux, you know, IO stats, right, on mm-hmm. Linux. Um, it, there's a parameter dash H, which makes the table that it dumps more human readable. And I'm sitting there looking at it and going, only somebody that lives in the command line would do that. And that's that's, <laughs> that's kind of what this feels like is, you know, th- there's a style of documentation, right, that, that people that code and think about stuff in that fashion, that's just kind of how they do that. So Absolutely. And since funny. you mentioned Linux, it's interesting. This thing has got a Linux feel to it completely, right? I mean, it is yeah. based, it just hosted in Linux, but now it's coming to Windows and uh, it's been interesting to see how they adapt to some of the Windows, uh, you know, uh, just the file system and the naming and things like yep. that. So uh, that'd be interesting. But yeah, but one of the key points I wanted to make about uh, Kubernetes, which is very powerful, I think, is right. I talked about these pods. But what what's good about these pods is that they can have labels, right? You can assign a label to a pod. And a label is nothing but a name value pair, right? You can give it a set of name value pairs. You can say, hey, you know, this is the type is a front end. It belongs to the finance department, right? Whatever, some identifying information. And and then you can, all your uh, commands, your management commands can be based on queries on these tags, right? Because think about it, you have thousands, you could wind up with thousands of these containers at some point, right? Once you get fully into a production environment. You have to be able to figure out, what, you know, which containers you're talking to quickly, right? You're not going to go and look at each one of them and say, okay, it's grouped this way, grouped that way. You just have to know what the identifying uh, properties are and uh, in the labels. And just, you know, you just put that in a query and it'll give you back all the pods, all the, you know, all the um, artifacts that match that label. So I think that label concept is very powerful. But what it's also used for the label concept is to take all these pods uh, that you have created, that you have used, and uh, you know maybe created a, a, a replication controller around it. Eventually, you want to expose it to the outside world, right? Because it's, otherwise, you can only access it from inside of Kubernetes, which 
might be useful in some cases, but most of the time you want to expose it as a kind of defeats the long term purpose. Kind of defeats the long term purpose, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and 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 you know what? Each one of these pods has their own IP address, as you know in Docker. Every container has its own IP address. The thing is that when you know when an application wants to talk to these uh, containers, they don't want to reference the IP address of the container because containers are fragile. Uh, the pods can go and come at any time, and the next time they may have a different IP address. And so they have this concept of services. That's what they call them. And the services are kind of like fr like front ends in front of all these pods. Okay. So if you have a set of pods that you created that is uh, governed by this uh, replication controller, you can say, I'm going to create a service that is actually referencing all these pods and how do you reference those pods by using the labels you can say uh, all the pods okay. that are of type front end for example is part of this particular service and now you have a load balance set you know you just have to connect to that one IP address which is of the service which is a virtual thing and that on internally will automatically talk and round robin or whatever to the uh, available next available pod and so that's the nice cool thing about it is that you know it it it, it you have to understand these concepts. When you understand them, you know I start to feel like some of the advantages that I originally thought, uh, for example, Service Fabric had. I, I see them all here now. Uh, one of the uh, controllers is something called uh, the, uh, the Stateful Set Controller we just talked about, right? That's mm -hmm. very similar to, if you remember, Stateful um, Reliable Stateful Collections. Actors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, reliable actors, reliable collections in, in service fabric. So they have similar concepts over here, which could be used to create, uh, you know, applications that require that uh, that for, that sort of statefulness. Or if you just need stateless, then you just create the traditional replication controller where you don't really care the the you know the pods can come and go as they wish. Uh, they also have other things like job controller. If you just want to run like you know just some utility jobs, right, and do some work and die, and so you have a job controller. They have cron controllers again, very much like a Unix cron uh, job, which essentially lets you set a schedule. Say, yeah, you know, I want to run these jobs at four o'clock in the morning every day, and it will run. It'll run those pods uh, at that time, you know. Uh, so I think you know they've really thought about this really well. Some of the I think a lot of things that we deal with today at customers and uh, within our own environments, uh, you'll find there's something in here in it for you here. You know, there's you can you can use Kubernetes for almost anything. I think one thing just to chime in on uh, experience I had with uh, Kubernetes a while back was especially with I got to bring it back to blockchain but uh, <laughs> oh we, yeah. we almost went a whole show without blockchain. <laughs> right. but uh, you know in blockchain the workload is such that in a lot of cases there's a node that has a lot of blocks on it right the, the blockchain and these have been synchronized and and stay in sync in this distributed fashion you know over time and you can imagine over time that a lot of history builds up there and you know, one of the things that um, the teams we were working with were using Kubernetes for was like, oh yeah, so when we want to spend new nodes up here, we use this feature in Kubernetes that says like, okay, let's say we have 10,000 blocks in this node right now. Now, instead of just spinning up a brand new node and putting, you know, inside that container, whatever software needs to run this node and then synchronizing and waiting for that to sync, which could take hours or days, uh, they could basically snapshot one of those ones that was in oh, there right now and bring it, it over. Nice. Yeah, exactly. They would take a take an image uh, snapshot kind of, and create yeah. a container out of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty slick how That's, they did that. That's smart. It's, it's, it's amazing as we're talking about this. I, I just had this vision, you know, like if you if you do a mirror and a mirror, right? You know, we have we have Hyper V, which is kind of driving 
Azure at, at its core, right? Obviously, it's you know we've layered a bunch of things on top of it, hence where that's where Service Fabric came in, mm-hmm. and then now we're coming and we're layering, you know, a, you know Azure Container Service with Kubernetes and Docker on top of that, mm-hmm. right? So we've got and and then inside those containers, you know, we we had Bob Ward on, you know, a couple of weeks back, and he was talking about running SQL Server. Uh, on a, in a container, in a so container. it's just like layers and, and layers and layers and layers. It's it's amazing what you know yeah. the capabilities that we've ended up getting out of all those layers. That's one of my goals is to run SQL Server on Linux in Kubernetes, uh, and just I, I got to try that out. And I'm sure yeah. it should work, but uh, but you know uh, you bring up a good point, right? Um, so. So how do you you know if if somebody wants to get play around with Kubernetes, what's the best way to do it? So I used uh, I actually have Kubernetes running on my laptop on my Windows 10 laptop, and uh, it's very cool. You can do that using a software called MiniCube. Okay, uh, it's uh, it's you know it's a kind of popular open source software. It runs obviously on on, on Linux as well as uh, there's a Windows variant as well. And the Windows variant is really nice. It uses PowerShell, uh, so it's uh, you know it, it does take advantage of some of the things that are already on your box. And it uses Hyper-V to uh, to run a special ISO um, image of Docker and Kubernetes. So they you know there's a prepackaged uh, ISO image that is running in Hyper V that essentially is your Kubernetes cluster. So the same Single box Kubernetes cluster running in Hyper-V. You just can assign it how much memory you want, etc. Uh, one of the um, the kind of things that are key things that I found on the hard way is that you have to turn off the the dynamic memory option of your of your Hyper-V. Uh, uh, oh, and see. use the fixed use the fixed size. Use the fixed size, yeah, because uh, Linux doesn't like uh, dynamic memory for some reason. It kept crashing, uh, so when I changed it to fixed size, uh, it got a lot better. But uh, yeah, so that's how the best way to get it is to use Minikube, and you just look up M I N I K U B E Minikube. Uh, we'll put some links in the show notes. Uh, that's the best way to get it on your machine. But once you're ready to to move into more of a development or production um, uh, environment. Uh, this, uh, you know, we had a few options. Like, traditionally, we talked. I, I looked actually looked it up. You remember we talked to Andrew Weiss? I think that was back like ex- episode thirty-eight. You won't believe that. Um, uh, and uh, he was the one who talked to us first about Docker, and he mentioned Kubernetes. The show was about yeah. Docker and Kubernetes. And that was the last time we talked about Kubernetes, by the way. Uh, well, I just looked up Andrew Weiss. He unfortunately is no longer with Microsoft. He now works for Docker. Um, but um, and good, good for him. I'm sure. Hope he's doing well. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, the, uh, back then we talked about how you would create a Kubernetes cluster in Azure. And you do it just like, uh, you know, the old-fashioned way, right? You get a bunch of VMs in Azure, and you deploy the software, and you got yourself a Kubernetes cluster. So there's always that way to do it. But if you want to take it one step uh, easier for you, you use ACS, right, which we've talked about in the past, Azure Container Service, where Azure, AC, Azure will create that that cluster for you, right? You just say, I want a Kubernetes cluster. I want so many nodes. And then Azure will essentially create an ARM template for you and then run an Azure automation job to create that, that cluster. But once it's created, it's yours to keep and yours to maintain. And then the third option, which is the most popular one, which has been uh, getting a lot of buzz these days, is AKS, or Azure uh, Kubernetes Service, which uh, takes it all the way to managed, which is, hey, Microsoft will create the cluster and Microsoft will manage it for you. You just get the endpoint, right? Do you remember talking about the cube control command? Right. That's yeah. all you have to do. You have to use cube control and you point to that AKS endpoint. That's it. That's all, that's all you get. 
So that takes a lot of the complexity out of kind of deploying Completely. and managing yeah. the cluster, and you can focus on just deploying exactly. your solution. You get access to that dashboard I talked about, and you get access, mm-hmm. and you can use Cube Control. Those are the two options that you have with AKS. But that's really all you need because you can start deploying all your. Uh, again, like I said, you know, there's no Docker images that are hosted in AKS or in Kubernetes. They just reference your external um, Docker hub or your private repositories that you may have. So really, you know, you you can. You know, you just point to them uh, from AKS, and you're good to go. The, and these are the. This is the one that um, I think. Uh, I think I saw the the demo where these these instances were spinning up in seconds, right? I yeah, I got to tell you that you know, with the Linux instance, Linux instances, they are fast. I mean, you know, I'm telling you, I'm running on my little machine laptop, right? But I assigned uh, one gig one gig of RAM. I think mm-hmm. I have like eight pods running in one gig. Eight wow. pods, you know, like front end, back end server, Nginx servers, you name it. Like three, four, you know, three, four pods in each cluster. I mean, it's like, it's amazing, and it's not even sweating over here, you know. Nice. <laughs> So uh, I'm, I'm, I must say I'm, I'm impressed that you know that you could do all this stuff uh, um, uh, in, on Linux and, and they work so fast. It's got me thinking that you know now. I'm just starting to put write a .NET Core, ASP.NET Core application on Linux, and I'm going to try and put it into my Kubernetes cluster, because if that you know, once that works, which it should, I just have to work out some mechanics. Um, then uh, you know you could do .NET development uh, on 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 on, um, on Linux and you know, use Kubernetes as your uh, you know your uh, microservice environment, right? Because that's yeah. really the 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 goal is to use Kubernetes to, to to write your microservices, and you've got all the pieces that you need here. You've got the stateful sets. You've got the uh, you know they've got these things called uh, uh, volumes, uh, persisted volumes, and things like that. So it's not like mm-hmm. Things are going to get lost. Everything's, you know, like backed up and and whatnot. So uh, that's cool. It's, it's it's all it's all good stuff. You know, I was like very 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 much uh, pleased with what I saw. Uh, one little tidbit I'll mention before we wrap up here is it's written in a language called Go. It's actually an open source language. Uh, uh, GoLang or Go is the two ways they talk. Yeah, about part of it. Yeah. So the whole thing is written in Go, uh, in Kubernetes, and essentially there's the main software is something called a Kubelet, uh, which is a little agent that runs in each of the nodes on the in the cluster. So the Kubelet essentially does most of the hard work of, you know, talking to, uh, talk, uh, setting up those nodes, deploying the pods, and things like that. Uh, so there's a Kubelet, and then there's Kube Control. Those are the two commands, uh, two main. Programs. Ah, that's where the Kube Controller comes in. Ah, yes, got it. Kube okay. Controller talks to the Kubelet. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> cool. So, yeah, it's 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 neat to think that I can pick up and take my. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I am a. I think in right in .NET these days, I can do other languages, but it's it's not my fastest. But to be able to pick that up and use that in these environments is is really neat to see that advance in that fashion. Absolutely, and they even have the concept of DSC. By the way, I forgot to mention that the yeah. desired state uh, configuration. So they have something called a deployment controller, one of the controllers, and that's exactly what it does. It just you just declare in a YAML file what your you know your configuration is, like what pods you have and how you want them laid out. Any change you make, it's going to make sure that all the pods have been corrected to the right format. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it. It maintains the state of everything exactly the way you want it. Nice, cool. All right. Well, so I hope uh, that gave everybody a 
good rundown on Kubernetes, and I definitely uh, uh, recommend folks, uh, you know, try and try the new AKS uh, service uh, to see how they could use Kubernetes real quick. You don't have to worry about all this cluster. The two things that I would recommend readers do is get Minikube for your laptop, so you can do your development there and play around with the commands and things like that, and then get and you know, use AKS to actually put stuff in Azure. Um, the one thing I noticed, and I don't know if Evan and Gail, if you run into this, the the um, the cloud shell uh, command uh, in the in the portal does not does not does not work with AKS. I think the the resource provider required for AKS or whatever uh, is not deployed in the cloud shell yet. Uh, oh yeah. Well, that was we. You know, we had the the PM on, and basically, I think if they if you make the request at uh, um, feedback, mm-hmm. I think it was feedback. They'll they're I, I think they're just adding stuff based they're on feedback stuff, yeah. from the audience. Yeah. Yeah, and AKS is still preview, so that, I mean that could be part of it as well. But yeah, I'm gonna. I just I just noticed that today. I was trying to create it, but of course, uh, the best way to do it then is to use the AZ command line on your laptop, right? To uh, download it, download the the AZ command line on your laptop, and then use the AZ command. That's the easiest way to do it. I would not recommend it doing it from the portal. The portal is actually confusing because you have to first create all the uh, Azure AD principles. You have to create. You have to get the certificates set up and all that. Use the AZ command line. It does have all that. For you automatically. Why the? Why would I use the portal to do what I want to say? It's just yeah. so complicated to do through the portal. Just use the command line. Just use the easy command line. That's the best way to do it. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the over. Thanks for the overview. So I, I I I know way more about this than before. <laughs> Probably more than you care, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 good stuff. You know, it definitely uh, was a little bit. Uh, uh, like uh, what brought me back to my childhood days of computers when <laughs> looking at all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it was exciting. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. All right. Awesome. Thanks to you. Yeah. Thanks to you guys. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any comments or questions, please use our Twitter handle at Azure Podcasts. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. Thank you, and see you next time.